Welcome to Future Thinking, and alongside podcast miniseries from North Standard, one of the world's leading marine insurers, I'm Mike Salthouse. In this episode, we examine the state of the world at the start of 2024 and look ahead to some of the key geopolitical events of the next 12 months. It is a year dominated by elections, with more than 70 countries holding votes at one level or another, and that includes the United States, Russia, and almost certainly the United Kingdom. To look at this and other key geopolitical events in 2024, I'm joined by Dr. Dominic Donald, Director at Autolysis Advisory. Dominic is a geopolitical advisor and analyst with 25 years experience in business intelligence, diplomacy, media and academia. Dominic, welcome. Delighted that you could join us. I thought we might start um, by your take on what is going on in the world as we at the start of 2024. Obviously, we've got a from your point of view, we've got a very exciting year ahead of us. Um, but I'd I'd be really interested to hear what what you you make of all the challenges we've got in geopolitics. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, I think anybody looking at at what's going on in the world right now might think there's actually too much going on. And frankly, we could all do with a bit of a rest. And to a certain extent, perhaps I would suggest that people do take a bit of a rest because a lot of the the drama and the volatility that uh, people see when they look at the news and when they look ahead uh, at what's coming in the year, a lot of that drama and volatility is actually a function of uh, the way that things get portrayed rather than necessarily the way that things are. One of the things I always tell my clients is when they're consuming the news, bear in mind how they consume news that's about something they know about, that's their sector, their company, their region, their football club. And when they consume that news, when it's about something they really know about, they are very skeptical and they're pretty analytical and they kind of know almost automatically Uh, whether something is tripe or not. But strangely, most people don't then apply that same kind of prism of critical thinking to uh, news coverage of things that they don't know about or might only know a tiny bit about. And there's a tendency to to take it all at face value. And uh, they shouldn't. Mm, Interesting. So you're almost saying, yes, it looks pretty bad, but actually... If you break these all these issues that we're reading about all the time into individual problems, each has their own particular reasons, particular dynamics, uh, and particular impacts. With that in mind, maybe we, we could start to look at the the individual areas. I, I think um, everybody was surprised um, that so much stuff came by sea out of the Black Sea. Um, so from a shipping point of view, we, we were all... Um, uh, well, I guess the ship owners will have, will have known, but certainly as a as a marine insurer, I was I was quite surprised to find out just how much um, sunflower oil uh, came from uh, came from Ukraine. What does the Black Sea region look like? What does what what in in, in with, you know within the context of the wider Ukraine Russia war? It's really interesting, actually, that when you look at the Russia Ukraine war, that's where you start because actually that is the part the, sh- the shipping world knows about that. The rest of the world tends not to know about that. And the rest of the world is following a narrative that says, uh, essentially, uh, the Russians have loads of shells, the Russians have loads of people, they'll grind the Ukrainians down, the rest of the world is going to abandon Ukraine. That's the narrative that people who aren't in the shipping world have been following. But the people in the shipping world can see that this stuff is indeed coming out of the Black Sea. And that is, for me, the biggest, most strategically important development of the past year uh, in this war. 
and that is that Russia has lost control of the Northern Black Sea. Now, what that means for trade is uh, essentially because Russia doesn't want to admit that it's lost control, it's pretending that everything is, is in essence going on as it was before. On one side, that means that Ukraine is able to, to do business, get things in, get things out. But another side of this is that in terms of the overall strategic military picture, if you like, Russia, having lost control of the North Black Sea, cannot hold on to Crimea. And the reason it can't hold on to Crimea is because to hold on to Crimea, they've got to be able to secure the Kerch Strait Bridge. And if they can't secure the Kerch Strait Bridge, Crimea can't be sustained. And Crimea is the strategic center of this war. The fighting is going on in other places, but in essence, the one thing that will end this war, that can end this war straight out, is if Ukraine takes back Crimea. That's a very interesting take on the problem. And I suppose looking at it through the prism of uh, shipping, what are the risks associated with Russian anger spilling over once once Ukraine has been, is, is, if, if Ukraine is successful in taking Crimea back? And how does that, that again, in sort of impact on, on trade, world, economy, all this sort of thing, do you think? Um, it's a good question. I think a lot of the energy that would be released by Ukrainian reconquest of of Crimea. A lot of that Russian energy would be focused within Russia. It would be a body blow for the Putin regime. And uh, while it might not necessarily um, force him out, it would certainly create huge political tensions that the state might not be able to contain. I think the chances of, of, of Russia mounting a a serious effort to interrupt uh, trade to be an international tricky customer, a bit like the Houthis, but on a on a larger scale. I think the chances of that are quite small, partly because Russia is going to have these internal convulsions one way or another, but also uh, because of Russian capabilities. The people who Russia would use to do this have, uh, to a certain extent, been put in tanks. Its warships have, uh, you know, have lost half their crews to to being tank crews, but I think the real thing is that the you know, the Russian state is going to be fighting for its own political survival. Let's um, let's talk about Israel and the Middle East. Um, I'd be interested in your take on that and how you think that is going to work through over the next few months, particularly given that Israel seems shows no sign really of of, of um, reining back on its determination to eradicate Hamas, and the longer that goes on, presumably the, 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 the greater the chance of broader broader escalation, that particularly affects shipping. Yes, and I think the fact that it hasn't happened so far is evidence that nobody wants escalation to happen. Hezbollah uh, has limited itself to these carefully calibrated exchanges with Israel. Iran, which was kind of blindsided, actually, by by the success of the Hamas invasion, they didn't expect huge numbers of hostages to be taken. They didn't expect the barbarism of the Hamas attack to have uh, been so widespread, to have been so fundamental uh, in its effect on the state of Israel. Iran is, is trying not to get caught up in this. And a lot of what has happened involving Iran over the last couple of months actually is a continuation of old business. The focus, and as, which is your dealing with, is that 
the, these players are being quite measured in terms of their their, their response. But the, the 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 party I think we're all maybe underestimating uh, worldwide is just the strength of feeling within Israel, so that the actual the conflict isn't escalated by. Iran and its proxy is probably the wrong word, but is actually escalated by Israel, which just sits there and says, you know, we can't, we can't tolerate this anymore. There is always that danger, particularly while uh, Netanyahu um, is prime minister, um, and particularly while Netanyahu's political survival as prime minister is dependent upon um, the support of some extreme right-wing um, parties and individuals. It is also clear that there has to be some kind of Palestinian political arrangement at the end of this that takes over some of the responsibility of of Gaza. And that's not achievable with Netanyahu in charge. And the people who Israel needs to get it out of the political hole it's dug itself into with Gaza, that's states like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Arab Emirates, um, perhaps Egypt, those states are very clearly saying, we will only help you get out of this if there is some kind of Palestinian political arrangement. The carrot we will offer you is, is recognition of Israel, but in return, there's got to be something like the two-state solution. Let's go a bit further south then and look at the Red Sea and the Houthis. I mean, this is the, the most direct, uh, has the most direct impact of obviously on shipping, uh, uh, seafarers, ship owners and international trade. Has this plateaued or do you think there is potential for further escalation here? It might well have plateaued in terms of effect. I think a lot of the comment on uh, the strikes against the Houthis are missing what seems to me to be the fundamental objective of those strikes. And I'm not surprised the comment is missing it because neither the US government nor the UK government will say this explicitly. But the point of the strikes is not to stop the Houthis firing rockets, firing missiles, sending off drones. It's to stop the Houthis being able to see what they're firing at. It won't necessarily stop them firing because, in part, their firing stuff is the political objective they are seeking to achieve. They don't necessarily need to hit anything. They can claim it, after all, if they want to, for their own internal political purposes. And that's the only reason they've done this. This isn't about Israel. This isn't about the Palestinians. This is entirely about making the Houthis stronger within Yemen and making them a more important international negotiating partner. For those purposes, they can just keep firing stuff. So I would see in the, in the months ahead a continuing naval presence that essentially manages to turn the Houthi threat into an irritation rather than a threat. And the odd ship still being hit from time to time. We may or may not have a Trump presidency in, in, in 2025. Whether we do or we don't, I, I suspect that this is going to be quite a disrupted year by the politics going on in the United States. But I'd be interested to hear what you what you think um, might be the impacts of a second Trump presidency and uh, what might be the impacts of a, um, another, another Biden term. Um, I don't think, if we're looking at this year, I don't think that the ins and outs of the presidential election, the, the ins and outs of the campaign, 
will have a specific effect, if you like, upon the shipping shipping world. I mean, I, I don't see, for instance, the the Biden administration um, shifting towards a more protectionist um, stance, shifting towards uh, perhaps sanctioning China for this or that, uh, that might obviously affect what can go in and what can go out. Where the United States political environment might play out in the shipping world is when the election has happened and a result is known. What foreign policy changes would you expect to see from a second Trump administration? I think a lot of the the elements that one saw in the first Trump administration would return, but I think they would return in a stronger and more concrete uh, form. He's likely to be much closer to uh, dictators, um, generally, try to, to make deals on a sort of bilateral level that will overturn um, existing arrangements, whether that's in relation to NATO, which I would expect the, him to try to get the United States to withdraw from, whether that's uh, China and Taiwan. Um, I strongly suspect he would like to um, essentially give China carte blanche over Taiwan. I think in trade policy terms, there would obviously be a very big difference with the Biden administration. I think it would be a strongly protectionist administration. Um, I think that the Trump uh, administration would probably seek to essentially dismantle a lot of the architecture of, of um, global trade. Having painted that rather sort of shocking, perhaps bleak picture, while he might want to achieve these revolutionary effects, much of it might actually just get lost in process and lawsuits and difficulties with Congress. Let's just finally then turn to um, something which I, I suspect you're going to tell me nothing will happen until we see the outcome of the US election, but um, particularly from what you've just said, but it's China, China, Taiwan. I'd be interested um, in whether you see anything happening in 2024, I guess before um, a Trump presidency, um, and I'd be interested in, in what you think that might look like if it happens. First thing to bear in mind, China and you know, at its head, uh, Xi Jinping, they're operating according to their own timeline and in pursuit of their own interests. So while it's very easy for the rest of us to see one event in the world and think that that might make China do X or Y in relation to Taiwan, the reality is that China has its own timetable. She has its own timetable. We're not entirely sure what it is. But there are strong indications that he wants Taiwan returned to the control of the mainland by the beginning of 2030. If this is the case, what we don't know is whether he has said, I want to achieve this by peaceful means, or I want to achieve this by invasion, or I just want to achieve this, I don't care how. The, the Chinese strategy for regaining Taiwan was essentially a political one. Uh, it was to take the one country, two systems idea that had been put together put in place for, for, for Hong Kong, but actually was devised for Taiwan, to take that system and sell it to the Taiwanese so that they would say, okay, we want to go back to China because we'll be able to retain our effective independence and we'll be able to have our own elections. And, and it'll be like being in Taiwan, but just will be part of great marvelous uh, communist China. But that's dead. That political scheme is dead because of the way that she has essentially driven a tank through one country, two systems in Hong Kong. So nobody in Taiwan really believes in one country, two systems anymore. That means they're left with the military route. And the military route is going to be problematic for several years. 
in substantial part because the you know Chinese military, which is rebuilding, is only now really beginning to find out how difficult it is to mount an amphibious assault on somewhere that doesn't want you assaulting it. The process of learning that, the process of working out the kinks in that effort, it requires a kind of lessons learned program that actually the Chinese military can't do because the Chinese military is political. And the lessons learned is all about identifying, without blaming, identifying what went wrong and correcting it. So the process of learning how to do this kind of operation is incredibly involved, very difficult, structurally very difficult for the Chinese military to absorb. And that therefore means that they will uh, be taking longer to mount any putative attack than would otherwise be the case. The danger time for me is the second half of uh, the next U.S. administration. And particularly if, if Trump is back in office, I, I don't think anybody would really believe that Trump would be ready to see the United States go to war on, you know, for Taiwan. Dominic, thank you very, very much. That's been um, truly uh, insightful. I think we've all learned a lot. I'm, I'm not sure whether I am reassured or uh, unreassured by what you've just said, but I certainly feel that my insights uh, improved quite significantly. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Future Thinking. In future episodes, we will discuss sanctions in the maritime industry, including the Russian oil price cap scheme. We speak to somebody who worked with Donald Trump when he was US president to find out what a second Trump term might mean for the shipping industry. You'll find the Alongside podcast and these future thinking episodes on the North Standard website at north-standard.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also click follow to ensure you don't miss an episode. That's it from me, Mike Salthouse. Bye for now. Thank you.